The coming days and weeks are going to be very challenging for Israel to stabilize the security situation. But for oil markets, everyone is watching what happens with Iran, Iran's involvement in this attacks. Are we seeing a muted response in crude to the geopolitics at the moment simply because the demand is also falling in tandem? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's Alison Savis with you again. Thanks for listening to our podcast and hit the subscribe button to ensure you see all our episodes when they're released. Today, we're going to do our usual quarterly update with a look at the state of the markets through the third quarter of 2023. But for the first 15 minutes, we're turning our attention to oil. There's been a huge amount going on in oil in recent years, from the shale boom, the discussion around the energy transition, the COVID demand shock, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and most recently, the crisis in the Middle East. Joining me to discuss all this is Antipodes Portfolio Manager, Graeme Hay, who spends his day knee-deep in industrial and commodity companies. It's been a while, Graeme. Great to have you back on the podcast. Hi, Alison. Great to be with you. So, Graeme, on oil, everyone will be aware of the situation in the Middle East. The effects of the Israel-Hamas war have been devastating. Alongside the tragic loss of life, we have enormous uncertainty in the region. Geopolitical risks are intensifying and an escalation in the Middle East will, amongst other things, have meaningful implications on the oil market. What's your read of the situation? Well, let me put some context around the current market dynamics and how we got to where we are today. Uh, the seeds of the current situation were really sown with the collapse in capital spending uh, with oil price uh, uh, when oil prices collapsed in 2014. That, that followed uh, the... Um, you know, the era of the, the shale boom. Um, a lot of that, that exploration uh, proved to be uh, both transformative for the industry, but also uh, much of it uneconomic. And, and by 2014, uh, that cycle of investment had ended uh, with the collapse in oil prices. Uh, and what followed was a period of underinvestment, um, very significant uh, period of underinvestment that ultimately uh, would, would drive up a price cycle uh, in the other direction. Um, so, you know, this has been a long time coming. Uh, the market uh, in more recent sort of quarters has been more evenly balanced. Global supply today is around 100 million barrels a day. Demand is just a little bit above that. Uh, and even before recent events in the Middle East, the market uh, market was pricing uh, crude at around $80 a barrel, WTI crude, on the back of, you know, the recovery we've seen in travel and the reopening of economies uh, post-COVID. Uh, OPEC and the Middle East are by far the biggest pressure points right now. The Middle East accounts for almost a third of global oil production, and it hosts the lion's share of OPEC members, of course, Saudi Arabia being the largest producer uh, in that block with about 12 million barrels a day of capacity. So we can't really refer to the Middle East as a single participant with a single strategy. There are regional complexities and alliances that could fill a podcast <laughs> similar to this one. Um, but let's focus on uh, what we can identify as risks. Um, and for oil, it's really the, the logistics routes out of the region, namely shipping pinch points such as the Straits of Hormuz, where practically all of the Middle East's oil transits are on its way to its final destination. Uh, Iran borders the Strait and clearly uh, could disrupt oil markets if it wanted to. So then let's suggest the conflict widens and Iran gets involved. How does this change the dynamic? Well, Iran has stated that it would escalate the situation if Israel materially occupies Gaza and that if Hezbollah and its factions from Lebanon were 
uh, to become more heavily involved in in the current uh, in the current war. Uh, then there's the further possibility of Iran directly countering Israel. Um, now, Iran's own oil production fell dramatically when its oil exports were, exports were sanctioned in 2018. When the US pulled out of the nuclear deal struck by the Obama administration in 2015, but these sanctions haven't really been enforced, particularly in recent times, and multiple parties facilitating uh, a what you would call clandestine oil trade have allowed production to climb back to around three and a half million barrels a day. Uh, much of that oil is traded via a, a grey market uh, with uh, uh, shipping uh, uh, fleets operating directly into China. China pays uh, a nice discount to receive that uh, that product, um, and and they've become in recent times the only buyer in town of of Iranian crude. China has shown a willingness uh, through the Russian situation to buy discounted crude whenever it's available, um, and are likely using this opportunity to to build inventory and stockpiles while prices are low. And as I mentioned earlier, Iran's ability to hold the world's oil supply to ransom sits with its position in the Straits of Hormuz. So, you know, just remember the 25% of oil trade uh, goes through that trade rate. And the US has started enforcing sanctions on Russian crude too, hasn't it? But here, crude exports exceed the G7's price cap of $60 per barrel. And you just called China out um, in your comments earlier. China and India have both been willing buyers of Russian oil given the discount to market prices. You know, it's a deal that suits all parties. If Rus- Russian sanctions are enforced, do you see this further restricting supply? Yes, the G7 has imposed sanctions, uh, but much like the Iranian sanctions, these have proved to be relatively ineffective from a volume perspective. Russia has circumnavigated all of the insurance complexities and logistics complexities by setting up a supply chain uh, really without any Western intermediaries. And that has allowed direct shipments of oil to India and China and other non-aligned actors, um, you know, in particular Middle East refineries. In principle, Russia's crude exports could fall by as much as three to four million barrels a day if it was fully enforced. But full enforcement um, uh, doesn't seem to be likely given the you know various uh, um, um, needs of, of countries like India and, and China. Um, so we see that as unlikely. Um, the strategizing between Iran, Russia and China further clouds the picture. The ability to enforce effective sanctions um, really rests on uh, China, uh, China's willingness to participate in that program. China clearly needs oil. Uh, Iran and Russia are very keen to supply it to fund their own domestic uh, programs. Um, and so it's difficult to see how the, the current <clears throat> situation would be uh, disturbed in, in some way. And what about Saudi Arabia's role? The US has been developing closer ties with the Saudis. Could they fill the gap of any shortfall in supply? Uh, that's right. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the only country with uh, today large-scale spare capacity. Uh, we think that's in the range of you know three to five million barrels potentially. Uh, but it would be a stretch, we think, for Sa- Saudi to rapidly add you know more than three million barrels a day, uh, even though in principle it it, it can. Um, it's more likely that if we saw a, a rapid move higher in oil prices, you would see the kingdom <clears throat> respond with. Um, additional capacity uh, to to try and uh, calm market fears around 
um, you know, what's happening in oil markets. Uh, but uh, we think that ultimately it has a, a target range of somewhere in the eighty to to hundred dollar price range uh, in order to fund its own um, programs of domestic spending, uh, and um, you know to to remind uh, other players that the you know the Saudis have a very firm hand on global oil supply at present, particularly with the U.S. having drawn down its strategic petroleum reserve over the last 12 months. So uh, the U.S. has been courting Saudi, um, uh, mostly behind the scenes, in order to try and avoid an excessive shock to the oil market. As we go into a 2024 political cycle in the U.S., that is obviously important (laughs) for um, the current administration. And do you think we could see greater output from the U.S. shale oil? Well, the U.S. is growing, uh, but just slower than it has historically. We think uh, the U.S. can grow production by around a million uh, barrels uh, per day, per annum, uh, with pricing you know, north of $80. Uh, the ability to grow is, is there, um, <clears throat> but it's, it's, you know, we have a, a different landscape than we've had previously. We've had a reconstitution of the shareholder base in that sector. Uh, we've had a lot of management change. And really, there is no, um, there's no real mandate for large-scale expansion uh, at this point for U.S. oil companies. Uh, what we are seeing instead is um, uh, a wave now of uh, consolidation, uh, so particularly focused on the Permian. So, you know, absent the <clears throat> uh, capital investment that, that may have happened in prior cycles, the, these companies are now putting their relatively well-priced equity uh, to work by acquiring what they think are inexpensive reserves, um, and that would that would in time that underwrite that could underwrite growth. But we think that's a little ways off just yet. And what about lower demand from China? The post-COVID rebound in China's economy has been weaker than expected, as policymakers address imbalances in the property sector. If economic demand from China undershoots, can that ease the tight supply-demand balance in the oil market? Yeah, so China's interesting. Obviously, China has been in a, you know, uh, if not a recession, certainly a growth slump for the last couple of years. Um, And that has dragged down demand for a lot of commodities. But interestingly, in 2023, when we look at the numbers set against the macro backdrop, China's demand for hydrocarbons, oil and gas has been actually relatively strong, stronger than you might have imagined, given how weak the, the, the macro settings are. It's quite possible China are <clears throat> stockpiling to some extent, both crude and possibly refined product. Um, but that has added uh, additional demand this year. So if China were to perhaps normalize um, after that inventory build, it could certainly result in uh, a, a, some sort of negative demand shock going into 2024. Uh, so that's certainly a possibility. So pulling this all together, can you walk me through the moving parts in the market? Yeah, well, there are a lot of moving parts, uh, as you say. Um, we, we think we've got a modest deficit of about a million barrels uh, per day in the oil market this year in 2023. Um, Iran and Russia together could reduce volumes by as much as three, three to four million barrels a day if they wanted. Uh, the US could grow by as much as one million barrels a day, as we've just mentioned. And then we have the Saudis with you know somewhere between three to four 
million barrels a day of spare capacity. Uh, based on this analysis, we think supply could reach potentially 103 million barrels a day next year, uh, uh, with OPEC adding back some of its spare capacity in the US growing uh, production from its, its current base. So net-net, this suggests we, we, we're looking you know, at a deficit that is similar to the levels of 2023 as we go into 2024. Now, clearly the macro uh, could uh, move either way and you know, we are in the camp of a, a mild recession in the US. That could certainly impact demand. Uh, but in the more extreme wildcard uh, scenarios of uh, regional risk, uh, particularly as it relates to the Middle East and the Straits of Hormuz, um, you know, that could certainly impact global oil supplies if, if this conflict were to escalate across the region. And we shouldn't event, we shouldn't we sh- we shouldn't also forget that the fact that the um, you know if if Iran did choose to respond that way, um, taking out <clears throat> as much as twenty five percent of oil supply uh, through actions in the Straits of Hormuz, uh, that would certainly drive um, a, a significant amount of demand destruction and um, further um, you know further increase the likelihood of, of recession. Uh, so there's a lot to play for <laughs> at the minute, um, and um, you know it's a very closely watched market by investors and and politicians. The price of crude has recently hovered around eighty five to ninety dollars per barrel. So given what we've discussed, do you see upside risk to the oil price? Well, prior to this recent conflict in the Middle East, we saw the market as relatively balanced. Um, you know. You know, supported it. Was supporting prices in the sort of eighty dollar plus range. Uh, very quickly thereafter, we added another ten dollars of risk premium to the to the uh, price of crude. Um, oil futures today indicate a moderate decline in pricing, back to the mid eighty levels by the middle of twenty twenty four. So a decline in risk premium. But but forward markets are typically bad predictors of uh, political risk. Um, so our, look, our fundamental view is that eighty dollars. Uh, uh, and, and above is enough to keep um, OPEC happy uh, and keep production in the US moderate without you know spilling over to a, a situation of oversupply. There's also a price level that we think, largely speaking, you know most economies can function um, with. And um, <clears throat> if you get prices moving into the you know hundred dollar, hundred and twenty dollar plus range, that is certainly likely to lead to demand destruction and. Um, uh, that will feed back into negative outcomes for economies. Uh, so, um, you know, that's that's how we see the current landscape. And how are you thinking about antipodes' exposure to energy in this environment? Yeah, our, our two largest holdings in the sector are Total Energies in France and Occidental Petroleum in the US. Um, we've, uh, I believe, we've talked about Total before on on this podcast. Um, look, it's it's amongst the super majors. It it has a few interesting characteristics that we like. Um, it's growing production. Um, you know, it's not just simply a play on uh, oil prices. Uh, Total have invested in their core um, their core business to grow production, and we're seeing that come through in numbers. Um, it's also very geographically diverse. It's not dependent on any one region or field. Um, it generates about half of its upstream profits from natural gas, predominantly LNG, and the other half from oil production. And more than half of its capex is going towards uh, lower carbon 
<clears throat> fuels, uh, including gas, renewables, hydrogen, uh, and other transition technologies. So it's a business that's evolving with the times, but it's it's harvesting um, its very strong hydrocarbon portfolio and uh, distributing those cash flows back to shareholders. Uh, you know, in a in a um, in a pretty meaningful way. So, you know, we think it's a remains a very moderately valued asset, um, and um, you know, with the cash returns, we, th- we think it's a, a, a has a, a a good role to play in our portfolios. Occidental is a slightly different story. It's a, a U.S. only operation, and most of its assets uh, are low cost oil in in the Permian. Um, uh, it interestingly um, has uh, some uh, uh, very attractive technology that's been put to work uh, in the field of carbon capture. Uh, Occidental are drawing on you know the years of experience they have in carbon management from CO2 separation, transportation and storage and they're doing that <clears throat> to build a standalone carbon capture uh, systems. And if you've seen any of the work that's been done by the IEA and, and others around net zero ambitions, it's very clear that carbon capture has to play a very significant role in achieving those goals. And Occidental has one of the most um, developed uh, portfolios in this regard. In fact, they've just in the last few weeks received a grant from the US Department of Energy for the development of its direct air capture hub in Texas. That'll be the world's first plant design to remove up to a million tons of carbon per year from the Earth's atmosphere, and there are there are more projects like that to come. So uh, that's a a longer run venture inside Occidental, uh, but we think it's um, relatively inexpensive optionality for investors today. Okay, Graham, let's look at what the third quarter brought and what's going on in markets more broadly. The global equity index in local currency terms, so in US dollars, has risen around 6% this calendar year. But performance at the headline level masks the concentration in markets. On an equal weighted basis, the index is down almost 5% over the same period. And an equal weighted basis is where each stock is weighted equally, as opposed to the traditional index measure where stocks are weighted by their market cap. So the point here is, is that the divergence between the two shows that, that the performance of the index has been driven by a handful of large stocks. And in a similar vein, the top 10 stocks in the S&P now account for one quarter of that index as the market crowds into a handful of perceived winners. Such narrow performance doesn't really support a soft landing narrative, does it? Yeah, history would show that uh, when you have this type of um a market dynamic uh, led by relatively few stocks and, and a huge divergence with with the average stock. The outcomes are normally not not particularly not particularly good. Um, we are seeing signs of stress in in that large cap, mega cap tech category of the market, <clears throat> which is no surprise to us given the relative valuations and you know the um, the challenges that some of these companies now are confronting in their in their core businesses. Um, so let, let's see, but typically you're right, it's, it's not a, a very good setup for markets. So what is driving the performance of such a narrow subset of stocks? Yeah, well, we, ha- we have had a very supportive liquidity environment uh, and that, that has helped underwrite particularly large cap stocks. Um, over the last six months, the US government's funding needs uh, uh, 
uh, as a result of its growing budget deficit, have been been met by issuing short-dated treasury bills rather than long-dated bonds. And the outcome of that uh, is that it has supported liquidity in markets. Uh, Let me explain that a little bit more. Uh, Treasury bills uh, were purchased by money market funds that would have otherwise had their cash parked dormant with the Federal Reserve. And money market funds have been happy to buy treasury bills because they're getting a more attractive yield for a similarly safe short duration asset. So there's two points to make here. Firstly, liquidity wasn't sucked out of other assets to fund the T-bill issuance. Cash just moved from one account sitting at the Fed into treasury bills. And secondly, by issuing short-dated debt, the treasury was able to avoid upward pressure on longer-term 10-year government bond yields. Um, The end result, we think, is that it's been a a, a very significant support for equities, and particularly large cap equities, um, given the excitement around AI. And and look, they've had relatively resilient earnings profiles as well. Um, But that has driven extreme dispersion with that sort of category, that Super 7 Magnificent seven category of stocks now trading, you know, on average more than 30 times forward earnings. Can this supportive liquidity environment be maintained? Well, we think the backdrop to this situation is changing and we can see it in the way treasury treasury yields have been moving in the last uh, uh, couple of months. Uh, The treasury has historically maintained a mix of both short and long dated funding, but short dated funding now is at the upper upper limit of the Treasury's historical uh, historical high mix. Uh, it's worth noting that the US fiscal deficit is expected to reach 6% of GDP this year, which is a, you know, a record deficit not seen since 1946. Um, and that's also in the context of record low unemployment. So um, the deficit, deficit is likely to remain high with, you know, with Democrats and Republicans um, both united on a, a number of programs in terms of supporting leading edge technology, the reshoring of supply chains, um, obviously healthcare and social programs will continue to be a a, um, a burden on the on the on the public purse as the population ages, um, and that spend, spending has to be funded. <clears throat> so it's likely that you know we're going to see an increase in the issuance of longer dated bonds to do that. Um, the Treasury has a lot of flexibility around its debt mix, uh, but we expect that over time that it will revert to something more of an historical average. And so what does this mean for government bonds and equities? Well, these long-dated bonds uh, will get bought, but the, the question ultimately is at what price? Um, the two largest buyers uh, in recent times have been out of the market, the US Federal Reserve themselves, who um, have in fact been adding to the supply of treasuries via quantitative tightening, as well as the commercial banks. And we don't see that uh, recent uh, yields on US treasuries have been sufficiently attractive to, to, to entice foreign investors, uh, particularly given the high cost of hedging the currency. And, and there'll also be um, uh, some recollections of what happened to Russia's uh, offshore assets um, when they were frozen following the invasion of Ukraine. And, and that may certainly feed into the thinking uh, of some foreign governments as to how much money they are willing to allocate to U.S. Treasuries. Um, so, so we look. We think yields need to increase to attract the demand that's required to soak up uh, the supply that is coming. Um, and the market obviously has begun to price this in. We've seen yields edging closer to five percent for the ten-year Treasury, 
uh, in recent months. Um, that would be the highest level we've seen since 2007. Um, so in terms of the implications for both bonds and equities, look, you know, if that, if that scenario does play out um, and we see rising bond yields um, that uh, are a function of a, um, you know, a, a creeping uh, and concerning budget deficit situation in the U.S., that will naturally put pressure on equity valuations. Uh, it will also feed into the already, you know, adverse interest rate shock that is feeding into the real economy. So there is a, a negative feedback loop <clears throat> that's associated with higher yields and has implications, obviously, for both equity valuations in the real economy. Um, you know, for us, it means, you know, the application of our pragmatic value framework is just, it's just staying disciplined around owning businesses where we think you have genuine mispricing. Uh, but you also have an underlying resilience in the in the in the business itself, um, and a growth profile that is not priced in um, uh, based on the valuations we're looking at. Okay, so the outlook for liquidity is deteriorating, and what about the broader economic outlook? Any change from our base case of a mild recession in the West? Uh, look, no, no changes really. Obviously, we're watching. Um, you know some very important <laughs> events, um, you know, that are playing out right now, both with respect to policy and geopolitics. Um, uh, uh, our base case is uh, that we, we do enter a mild recession. Arguably, Europe is already there based on the data points that have been coming through. Uh, we know China has been a, a growth slump. Um, I'm, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure if you're allowed to call it a recession, but it, it, looks, it looks like one. Uh, the US economy has remained uh, strong despite the tightening, uh, being, it's been supported by consumption and, and in particular non-residential uh, investment. Uh, uh, but manufacturing is signs showing signs of stabilising, um, but it remains relatively weak. Um, so uh, you've got a, a few a few dynamics in the US that are, are, are you know somewhat unique. The strength of the labour market has 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 kept uh, demand relatively strong. Uh, and as we've seen, the labor market remains quite tight. Unemployment levels remain quite low. Um, so, um, but look, both, both, both parties, whoever gets in in 2024, um, both have agendas to, uh, uh, we think, you know, reinforce a lot of what's played out previously, which is, you know, addressing climate goals, um, fortifying supply chains, um, bringing a lot of manufacturing back to the US uh, and that, that will likely feed uh, a requirement for more funding, uh, higher rates uh, as a result and, and, and feed the inflation dilemma that's in front of the Fed right now. So, uh, you know, when you combine all of these <laughs> dynamics, uh, uh, you, you have a, a, what looks to be a pretty volatile outlook and uh, both from a macroeconomic point of view as well as a policy point of view. And markets typically hate volatility, so um, you know we, we remain relatively cautious on on um, just the outlook over the next probably twelve to eighteen months. In our last market update, we called out that in the likely event of a Fed pause and recession in the West, the antipodes global portfolios were relatively defensively positioned while maintaining that tilt to value. Has there been any change to this broader positioning? In terms of our broader positioning, no, it hasn't changed a lot. Uh, we, you know, we are still uh, uh, relatively uh, defensively positioned. Uh, we have, um, you know, a 
good sized weightings to our attractively priced staples. These companies are market leaders. Um, example would be uh, someone like Tesco in the UK. Uh, it's a company that has successfully navigated the emergence uh, of the discount operators in that market. But uh, more importantly, they're actually taking market share as grocery, uh, as grocery demand shifts online. Uh, so there's a defensive characteristic, but also a growth element to what they're doing. Uh, we've been increasing our exposure to healthcare, anchored by companies such as Merck and Sanofi in, the, in France. Um, these are large cap pharma companies, both with deep pipelines and exposure to sticky long duration businesses like vaccines. Um, and then uh, on the other side, we're, we're also increasing our exposure in, to attractively priced you know, ERP software cloud and AI winners like uh, companies such as Oracle, SAP and Microsoft, um, where we see upside <clears throat> um, to from, uh, from AI uh, with companies like that having what we think are relatively visible pathways to monetization um, uh, and, uh, um, and where it's not egregiously priced. Uh, so they are certainly featuring in the portfolio. Um, but we're also, you know, we're also looking at early cyclicals because if the Fed can engineer a soft landing through its uh, policy settings in the coming six months, then it will be more appropriate to lean into some of our cyclical stocks. Uh, so that's certainly an area we're looking at as well. And Graham, that would, I, I assume, include our beneficiaries of emerging investment cycles around energy transition and supply chain onshoring. CapEx cycles that, you know, that we have been talking about for some time. And again, I think it's really interesting that we see the market crowding into a handful of perceived winners when we're, we're still at the very early stages of these investment cycles. And I suspect there are many beneficiaries and are not efficiently priced. Yeah, that, that's correct. Uh, look, every, every market cycle, we see a reshuffling uh, of the previous winners. Um, uh, new investment cycles disruptive technologies, new themes emerge. And so rather than crowding into yesterday's winners, investors always need to be thinking about <clears throat> uh, what's changing and position themselves you know, for that change. Uh, a good example of that in our portfolio today, we think continues to be someone like Siemens. Uh, the company is a beneficiary of, 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 of many, many of the emerging CapEx cycles that we see playing out across the globe. Uh, they are a leader in factory automation, um, uh, manufacturing lines are being redesigned and retooled for low carbon, a low carbon world. And factory automation will also benefit from the enormous amount of reshoring that's happening in, um, in Western economies right now. Uh, we've also been adding to our cyclical stocks. Um, uh, uh, we see, in particular, where we see uh, strong evidence that the destocking process has already played out. I mentioned companies like Total and Occidental, but there are other industries where um, the downturn that we're seeing play out in some of the macro data today was preceded by destocking um, in certain industries. And in some cases, those companies are coming out the other side of that destocking process. And uh, with strong balance sheets and, and leadership positions, they're pretty interesting investments at this point. So we're entertaining those types of ideas. You know, examples would be in the chemicals, uh, the pulp and paper sector. Graham, thank you for your time. You've given us a great market summary, along with some really interesting insights into the oil market. Thanks very much, Alison. It's great to be with you. For further information on Antipodes, head to our website, antipodes.com, and you can also follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. 
The content in this podcast is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy, hold or sell any security.